when I ran across your TikTok, I was amazed. I'm like, I have this sort of twin out there. Somebody who understands my reality, somebody who doesn't look at me as you're exaggerating or you're lying or you're stupid or you're making this up. Yeah. I got so tired of people saying, how could you not know? How could you not know? And my answer to them now finally is read the book. (laughs) That's how. (laughs) As a young child, Edwina Adams was quiet by nature. She would whisper when speaking. In boot camp, she was thrashed for not yelling loud enough. But when she discovered her ex-husband was a con man, she started to make noise, proving you don't have to be loud to make some noise. Now Edwina's on a mission to motivate. So kick back and tune in for candid conversations with those who have harnessed the power of their voices. Let's make some noise. Welcome to Let's Make Some Noise, where no matter what you sound like, you can make some noise. I'm Edwina Adams, and today I have joining me um, Dr. Jan Canty. She has a PhD, and she's author of a couple of books. Um, one of them is A Life Divided, and I've actually written, I've actually read this book. It's amazing. It's a psychologist's memoir about the double life and murder of her husband and her road to recovery. She's also written a secondary book that is called What Now? Navigating the Aftermath of Homicide and Suicide. She also supports the Innocence Project, which is really what I'm excited to talk to you about. So we are going to get into that. But I know that kind of your your past and what you've been through plays into your role at the Innocence Project. So definitely wanted to highlight that and talk about it. Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, so um, I still think it's so interesting how we met. (laughs) I consider you a fast (laughs) friend. And um, now I can tell the story, but I would love to hear it from your perspective (laughs) as to um, what brought us together. What brought us together is our unusual and upsetting common denominator, which is that we both happened to fall in love with and marry men who were pretending to be somebody other than who they really were. In my case, it was a psych- another psychologist who was 11 years older than, uh, 18 years older than me. We'd been married 11 years. When I found out that he'd been living a lie, he had a double life as Dr. Miller in the red light district of Detroit. He had given away all of our money to the point where we were $30,000 in debt, which today is about mm-hmm. 70000 He'd yeah. given these two people that he befriended a a scrapbook of our house with photographs of our belongings and the layout, which I had drafted for insurance purposes in case there was ever an emergency like a fire and then we needed to turn into the insurance company and many other indiscretions. And after he went missing, he didn't fail to come home one night. Ten days later, I got a phone call from the the uh, head of the Detroit Homicide Division by the name of Inspector Gil Hill through his messenger. Detective Marlis Landeros, who's a phenomenal person, that could be a show in its own right, called me down to police headquarters and 
in a very few words, told me that they had discovered him buried in three different places in a bog in northern Michigan, a bog that was owned by the University of Michigan Biologic Station, reserved for roadkill because they were studying mosquito life. It was a perfect cover, but they had a confidential informant come forward who fortunately led them to his remains, that which were flown back to Detroit. I was brought in the next morning early to identify him. Now, that was necessary back in 1985. DNA wasn't, his, wasn't then what it is today. And they also said it was to help with the, quote, court case. The, quote, court case really was a preliminary examination, which I was subpoenaed to go to. I would not have gone otherwise. And I had, it was the only time I'd seen the two defendants in person. And it was a really difficult uh, treatment that I got in the court system. Homicide survivors, as we're called, really are not welcome in the courtroom even today. And we're treated pretty rudely. And it was my case that that was the way it was. So I swore I would never go to the trial. And I did not. It went on without me. And that's how much we're needed in the courtroom. The court, The murder case can proceed without you and often does. So at any rate, the two were convicted. One, uh, the woman that was involved got out before I could sell my house. The man was given life without the chance of parole, but died in prison five years later from medical problems. The press was so invasive and so rude, invasive. I mean, here's just one of many examples. I'll give you two examples. One is they disrupted his funeral. Two, they published, the Detroit News published a map to my house from the crime scene to the map, to my front door. Like it had no relevance, the direct connection, but they published it anyway, which caused a lot of people to come by, stop, take pictures and steal things from the outside of my house. So the media was so relentless, I ended up leaving altogether and I left town, moved away, changed my name, changed jobs, and I did not speak of it for 30 years. This is before the internet. This is before grief therapy. This is before Facebook, cell phones, and many other advantages that we have today. My point being, it was up to me to fix me, and I had to figure out a way to do that in that intervening time. And when I did come out the other end 30 years later, I was kind of like pivoted to the opposite end, where now I'm doing everything I can to bring awareness to other homicide survivors. And one of those things that I did was to have a podcast, Domino Effective Murder, in which I had a guest. And the guest was a man by the name of Jeffrey Deskovic, who was wrongly convicted in the rape and homicide of a high school, a fellow high school student when he was a high school senior. That began our friendship. He got me involved in the Innocence Project. I've been to national conferences twice now, the last time of which I sponsored somebody just coming out of that situation. And it's really changed my view of convictions altogether. And it's something that I'm glad to speak about for a change because nobody ever asks me about wrongful convictions. And I think it's a very important topic. I'm glad you're asking about it. Yeah. I mean, I'm so impressed because especially after kind of getting to know your story a little bit and reading the book, which is so well uh, written, that it must be rare for somebody who has been a victim of homicide themselves to be in the position you're in to help with the Innocence Project. Is that right? Or do you see it When I go to these conferences, I'm the only one there. Because most, I'd say, 
maybe a quarter of the people there are exonerees. Then there's quite a few public defenders and and defense attorneys and family members of the people that have been wrongly convicted. I've never met anybody else who is an individual who's been involved with a murder directly, who has no connection to the Innocence Project. But that's why uh, Jeffrey Deskovic wanted me involved because he, of all things, wants me involved in legislation related to it. And I laugh about that because you couldn't meet somebody more naive about the political process. <laughs> I've never stepped foot inside of a governor's place or anything of that sort. And he said, but that's why it's important to have you because you're not a political animal. You don't have a stake in the game. And you can be somebody who can say to the legislators, when the time comes, that you're speaking as a crime victim. You want mm-hmm. convictions, yes, but you want accuracy in those convictions. It does nobody any good to put the wrong person behind bars. Yes. And so I, I said, I'm willing, but I'm not trained. I, I don't really have a... And he said, that's fine, because they'll know that you're genuine if you don't come off as somebody who's seasoned with a axe to grind. So that's where we stand at this point. Yeah, and and you definitely don't have an agenda other than you just want you're seeking the truth, you know, right? And that it's it's just amazing. I mean, if I'm ever wrongly convicted, and you see, I'm, I mean, I watch, I watch the 2020s and the things like that, and there are so many stories of somebody, and sadly, they're always incarcerated 15, 20 plus years, and then they're like, oh, sorry, we made a mistake, and you're like, yep. no, it just can't be that way. I mean, when somebody's using their voice and trying to say, look, take another look at this, there's got to be people who care and that will legitimately do that because it could happen to any of us. I mean, these people, it just could happen to any of us, and it's a reality. It's true, and people don't appreciate that fact, but you're right. I've met women there at the conference because I usually go to the women's workshops while I'm there. And there are quite a few of them I've met who are quite wealthy, own their own businesses, no crime history whatsoever, money in the bank, driving a new car, and the next thing you know, boom. One of them was a woman who owned a series of daycares. And this child accused her of inappropriate touch. And the child ended up dying when she got home, which was totally disconnected. It was a freak correlation. So she got tried and convicted of murdering this child to cover the testimony of this child. And she did get out, but it took her 25 years. Hmm. One of the things I learned when I was at the conference is that when women are put behind bars for wrongful convictions, usually it's for rape or murder, 99.9% of the time it involves their own child or a child. Really? And uh, many times it's an accident that is wrongly depicted as a murder. We have a case right now pending where a woman is on death row and has been has a temporary stay of execution. That's exactly what happened to her. And we're just hoping and praying she'll get off death row before they put her to death. But even lawmakers on both sides have implored the DA to drop the case, but he won't. Wow. Her her original DA, the one that put her behind bars, And her own attorney were found out to be corrupt. So these are all new personnel, but they just can't admit they were wrong. Mm -hmm. So they would rather put an innocent person to death than say, I'm wrong. Yeah, that seems to be in all the stories I've seen. And I know it's just pieces of the story, but that seems to be the common thread is that people just don't want to be wrong. Right. And, And you have to be humble. I mean, it's somebody's life. So 
Right. It's okay to be wrong. <laughs> it's okay to admit that you've made a mistake. Well, thank you for your work with that. And and being that we talk about, you know, using our voice and and things like that and and learning about your past, but I'm curious growing up, what were you like? Were you somebody who was always willing to say what needed to be said or were you kind oh, of yeah. quiet? Oh or? yeah. And I attribute that to having a bully for an older older brother. I don't mean in an extreme way. I never had bruises. He never cut me. I don't mean anything like that. But he'd get me in his wrestling mode. He's four years older and a big guy. He put me in a wrestling pole and say, uncle, say uncle, say uncle. And I go, no, no, no. And he got to the point where he was worried he was going to break my arm. If I didn't say uncle, but I knew he would never hurt me severely. So we were at this impasse. We went yeah. through that many times. Uh, he really made me be assertive. Uh, but also, I'm, I'm a twin, and my sister was picked on a lot. And I would stand up to her, sometimes to adults. My sister was overweight. I was very skinny as a child. And adults would say, even teachers would say the rudest things to us together like they would say to my sister oh do you clean up her plate oh and i got so mad i would yeah it made me so mad i would speak up to her to uh to them on her behalf and say that's not being like an adult don't say that to my sister yeah i was i was upset another time i remember my mom had a very who was terrific i had a wonderful mom i wouldn't change her for anybody in the universe and she had a very rough childhood and I did not like her mother, my grandmother. And I remember, it's the memory's vague. I was probably 10 or 11, maybe. We went up to my grandma's apartment, and I was in the kitchen. They were in the living room, and I heard my mom saying, stop, stop, stop. And I heard slapping, and I walked in there, and my grandma had her in the corner slapping her. She was very abusive. Uh -huh. I don't know what it was about, and I didn't care. I got between them. And I said to my grandma, you stop hitting my mom right now. I mean right now. And she looked at me and my mom said, go, go, go away. And I said, no, I will not. I will mm -hmm. not. This is not right. And I said the same thing to her. I said, grandma, you act like an adult. You stop this right now. And I went home and told my dad. Wow. So I never had a problem being assertive, even though I was one of the smallest kids on the block. <laughs> um, I think in some ways being physically frail and physically small. I mean, I was only four pounds when I was born. I kind of started out that way. I think I had to make up for it in other ways, you know, the old Napoleon <laughs> complex. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. So if so, if through your life you had this assertiveness and then, like I know the mental toil it takes when you've realized you've been duped, you know, like and by somebody uh. that was supposed to love you and that you loved, what did that do to your voice for a time? For the longest time, believe it or not, well, maybe you would because you've been in my shoes. Um, I kept thinking they got it wrong. This isn't who he, who they say he is. He wouldn't do these things. I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So for the longest time, I, if anything, I was irritated with the police and irritated with others who said these awful things about my husband. But when it gradually sunk in after I saw the proof, after I saw what they were dealing with, I was mad. I thought, if you were alive today, I'd leave you in a heartbeat and leave skid marks. <laughs> but I was feeling overwhelmed because the media, the bills, 
I had to undergo testing for AIDS because she he was involved sexually with one of the perpetrators, and she was an IV drug-abusing prostitute. AIDS had just been discovered, so I had that wrinkle to deal with. I had the looky-loos coming by, stealing stuff from... I mean, everywhere I looked, there were issues. There was no place where I could exhale. And so it really, truly wasn't until I moved away 18 months to two years later that I was finally able to exhale and sit and grieve and process. Because up to that point in time, I was just busy putting out fires. And so then initially, I, I'd say I, I felt very sad and very foolish for believing him, for not questioning, for defending him. Um, and then I just thought, okay, I made a very important decision. The decision I made was they've gotten my house, my money, my husband, my health, my privacy, and my job. That's it. That's it. I draw the line from here on out. It's about rebuilding my life. They're not getting another thing from me. And I don't know what it's going to take. I don't know how long it's going to take, what I'm going to do. But somehow, some way, I'm going to dig myself out of this and make something of this. And I really had no definition of what that would look like, but it took 30 years and I did. So I, I, I by the time that time came along, I would say at this point, I'm just in, indifferent about him. It's like, he was a sick cookie. And right. <laughs> I'm not angry. I'm more like I dodged the bullet and whew, and I got a second lease on life. Let's get on with it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel very blessed to have met so many people along the way. I feel blessed to have had my education. I mean, there's been so many things that I feel grateful for. And I think that that also diminishes anger and diminishes feelings of retribution or pity, a self-pity. I don't feel any of those things. I, I, I'm more like, let's get on with it. We got a lot of work to do here. Yeah. And, and I can tell, I love that. I mean, your, your TikTok channel is great. You do, you put out amazing content that is helpful to people, you know, and hopefully yes. And I believe that it is. And not just your work with the Innocence Project, but just in kind of shining a light on this, which is what I was trying to do, that initial video I made where um, that's how we connected. The very first video right. I made, you happened to comment on it. And, oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> when I ran across your TikTok, I was amazed. I'm like... I have this sort of twin out there, somebody who understands my reality, somebody who doesn't look at me as you're exaggerating or you're lying or you're stupid or you're making this up. Yeah. I got so tired of people saying, how could you not know? How could you not know? And my answer to them now finally is read the book. (laughs) That's how. (laughs) Right. Well, I hope I can say that one day. But it was a breath of fresh air to find you. It was. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. You know, you were the first person when you, it was just text on a post, you know, and you said that. And I immediately was like, oh my gosh, this is the first person to say this to me. And it felt so yeah. good. And it it just yeah. means a lot. I, I never told you this, but my biggest worry when I answered your TikTok post was that you were not going to believe me. Like you were thinking, oh, she just <laughs> said that to say that. <laughs> no. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad I believed it because, as you know, when you when you go through what we do, um, you don't trust like you used to. 
But the people you do trust, I mean, well, I, I th- you do, you're able to trust. I'm not saying you don't have that ability. Selectively. You trust selectively and... I'm sure you're like me, and I was just saying this on a with a different guest about something totally unrelated, but like i I really let my gut lead the way. And my gut was like, this woman is legit. and i I immediately went to your post or your page and was like, Oh my gosh, I'm so glad to find her. <laughs> I want to know more. <laughs> and of course, I got your book right away and started reading it. And, yeah, it's just it's been healing for me to find you. For sure. Well, good. I'm I'm glad that. I'm glad of that. Yeah. So I have a couple more questions I would like to ask you. Um, What would you say is the most challenging thing um, life has been teaching you just this year? Wow. Truly, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, it's not what you might expect. I went back and listened to several of my podcast interviews. And I, and I always look for themes, you know, is there some, something I've missed that keeps, keeps coming up? And there was, and it smacked me right in the face because I hadn't seen it. This is going to sound woo-woo, but the theme that keeps coming up with my guests is what I would call sixth sense experiences. Yeah. People, counselors, uh, young women, others that have told me about these events that they've had in their life that have to do with the with communication with the deceased. At first, if I would have been told that I would have dismissed it to like, well, maybe they're on drugs or maybe they're making this up or whatever, but it's come up so often hmm. that I've had to have a couple experts on my show about that. That was a twist I did not see coming at all. Wow. And it relates to an experience that I've forgotten about for a while, but it is in the book, and perhaps you remember reading about it. After my husband didn't arrive home on time, he he was always punctual. So, and even though it was storming outside, I was surprised he was so late. And by 11 o'clock, I was pacing the floor because this was hours overdue, not like him. And this is before cell phones, so there's no direct connection. And I was pacing the floor, and I went into his office, and I looked in a mirror in the office. And I said out loud, he's dead. He's not coming home. And I thought to myself, after I heard myself say that out loud, like, well, that was a bit dramatic. What made me say that? That was fatigue speaking or whatever. And it turns out he had been murdered by that time by a couple of hours prior to that. And I I never knew what to make of that. It was such a a very distinct moment because I'd been panic and looking out the windows at the lightning and the hail and all. And in that moment, everything was like silent and quiet and contemplative. And then as soon as I said it, it was like the sound of the rain and the thunder came back and my mood shifted. It was the most bizarre thing. I've never had anything like that happen to me since. So, so in answer to your question, that's a new theme that came along that, was very much a surprise. Yeah, that is interesting. I do remember reading that in the book, and uh, I, I I believe it. I mean, I've had similar experiences where it's just like a knowing, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very fascinating. Lastly, what legacy do you aspire to leave through your voice? 
I want people to have hope. I want people who have been through homicide and suicide. I want them to know they're they're not alone. I want them to know they're not to blame. I want them to know that there is support out there, but do not expect to get it from the criminal justice system because that's not going to happen. I want to give them enough voice where they can push back a little bit with the media and get some of our rights out there because we are, there's so many ways that homicide survivors are compromised by funeral directors, by crime scene cleanup companies and the media and true crime podcasts. I could go on. That needs to change. We are not entertainment. We are not dumb. <laughs> we are not gullible, all of us. I mean, I, I think looking back, I was a little bit, but I was also very preoccupied. I was in the midst of my postdoctoral fellowship and working 100 hours a week. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like I had a lot of time to spy on anybody. Um, so my legacy is I, I want to leave the message of hope that people need to come together and need to. Uh, support one another and to be grateful for what they do have and to realize that there are resources now that there weren't five years ago and there will probably be more resources in 10 years that we don't even have today. But but also understand that there are people behind bars paying the price for homicide in part because of the eyewitness testimony of homicide survivors, I'm ashamed to say. yeah, That's got to stop. Eyewitness testimony has to become more accurate. There's many things we could and should do to reduce wrongful convictions, and I would hope that that will pass eventually, that will come to bear. That is amazing. Well, you're doing a great job of leaving that legacy already. And if people want to connect with you, how can they find you online? It's real simple. I have it all in one spot. (laughs) All they have to do is go to my webpage, uh, which I started a blog on recently, by the way. Like I didn't have nice. enough to do, right? My husband goes, how many more things are you going to do? Um, anyway, it's www.jancanty, that's all lowercase, J-A-N-C-A-N-T-Y-P-H-D.com. And they can find the podcast, the books, the blog. And and there's also a couple pages of resources listed in there as well for homicide survivors if they care to choose look at them. Very cool. Uh, I will say that um, your other book, The What Now, is not just good for people who've had family members that that's happened to, but there's also resources in there for like EMS and first responders, things like that as well. Is that correct? Right. I I wrote it so that uh, teachers, first and second responders, friends, there's a whole chapter dedicated to friends, and others can use it as a resource guide. It's It's a resource guide. It's not a, a narrative book uh, that takes people through the homicide process from the time of the death notification, dealing with the media, what your friends can do to help, understanding the court system, helping children grieve, funeral planning, on and on and on, down to parole and advocacy. It's That's why it ended up being a little thicker than I'd planned on. But there's so many parts to it. And I wanted to pull it together in one volume because because I think it's too fragmented. We have too many resources out there that are fragmented that don't speak to one another, and it's left to us to pull it together at a time when we can't do it. So that was why I was trying to pull it together in one volume. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, it, to me, it's the it's the type of book that would be a great resource for like even churches to have on hand, you know, and then if some, something happens to 
somebody that they know or that somebody reaches out to them that because this has happened, mm-hmm. that could be something they could give them. You know, it's just Yeah, it's I think amazing. police departments could have one, emergency rooms. Mm-hmm. Any place yeah, where you rooms. tend to have cross, likely will cross paths with somebody who is experiencing an immediate situation involving the violent death of a loved one. Yeah, very good. Well, thank you for that. And thank you again for being here. It was so nice to talk to you more in depth. And I definitely also hope to meet you in person one day. Yes, that would be fun. Yes, definitely. And for everyone else, um, you can visit edwinnaadams.com to book me as a speaker or just find out where you can um, follow me on social media. Thank you so much.